welcome to episode 19 of The Sizzle. This episode, I'm talking to Jane Garza, who is Managing Director of Nobel LA. Jane's work is all about future-proofing organizations and teams, thinking lots and, and working around company culture and business strategy. And Jane works with an incredible roster of clients. Uh, we're talking about people like Calvin Klein, Google DeepMind, and Reddit. Uh, so, you know, a hard hitter. And uh, talking to Jane about organizations and organizational psychology was really interesting. It felt like bringing the big guns to, to talk about topics that I love, like psychological safety. And it was a really rich conversation. So let's get into it right now. It's always nice to start with a bit about you. Mm-hmm. So who are you and what do you like doing and what do you think is important? Mm, such nice questions. Um, well, first, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm Jane Garza. I'm the managing director of um, the Los Angeles team at a company called Nobel. We are a culture change consultancy. So we go into companies and we help them think about what might be dysfunctional or behind the times or not up to date with their customers in their culture and how that affects their strategy and help them make strides towards changing that. So um, that's what I do, who I am. I, um, I did HR for about eight years prior to joining Nobel. I did in-house kind of traditional HR in the beginning, and then it slowly morphed into more of a culture and strategy role, helping define people strategy. Like, what even is that? How do we make that personal to a company? How does that affect how we onboard or how we train up leaders? That kind of thing. Um, I went to school for psychology. I've always been fascinated by change. I thought for a hot second that I was going to work in prison systems and then in school systems and even worked in Twin Towers here in LA for a hot second. And, um, and then uh, I joined uh, a role in an HR team while I was still in college and got really interested in like this big human system, the one that we all <laughs> spend five days a week in and uh, all the dysfunctions of it. And then after spending about uh, eight years doing that in-house, I just got really interested in what this would look like if I was bouncing around from culture to culture, knowing that every company reacts differently to change. And uh, this might look very different at Snapchat versus Warner Brothers versus Airbnb. Um, And so I came across Nobel, joined them about three years ago. I've worked on projects uh, for Warner Brothers and Calvin Klein and Google DeepMind helping make change. So sometimes that was bringing in new innovation. Sometimes that was helping them figure out why work-life balance wasn't happening. Um, All sorts of change, but really, uh, basically what we're doing is not new. Like management consulting is not new. Organizational design is not new, but we try to approach it in a new way and try to take what uh, often looks like software design style, like test, learn, iterate, and apply that to changing culture. So how do we rather than these sweeping mandates of this is now our vision and our purpose values, et cetera. How do we take a little part of a company, test a new way of working together and then learn from that and grow from that. So it's a bit of what I do on the day to day in terms of um, the other part of that question was like, what do I find important? Uh, I think what leads me to this work, I just had this really great conversation with one of my colleagues about this yesterday um, is I've always just found it fascinating and very rewarding to be in an advocate position for someone. So I've uh, spent a lot of time volunteering as a sexual assault response team member, which basically just means that you're part of the team that um, joins someone in the doctor's appointment or in the courtroom or with the, the police when they're putting in their police report when sexual assault does happen to help advocate for what they need. Sometimes you don't say anything. Sometimes it's just like literally your presence is what helps them advocate for themselves a little bit better. Um, And studies show that it's really just about that, right? It's like about lending a little bit of voice and support just by being there. And then sometimes you are counseling them through it as well. Um, And in a way, in a way, I think part of the work that I do on the day to day is a bit of that advocacy is helping leaders and, uh, 
the front, the top lines of a company listen to the front lines a little bit more and bring some more agency and ownership back to the folks who are doing the work and closest to the customer. So that's my like big picture goal. And a lot of the goal that we talk about at Nobel is like, we want to impact work in a big way versus just this one company. We ideally want to try to make work better in a lot of these broken systems as much as we can. That was long-winded. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a really lovely introduction to you and what you think is important. And I mean, th- the first thing is you clarified the pronunciation. So it's Nobel. Mm, yes. I was thinking yeah. Nobel, you know, like Nobel, Nobel. Um, so I appreciate that clarity. And, you know, the, the thing that really resonated for me was when you were talking about your position as an advocate, because mm. I think as a psychologist, I work, I work across lots of different schools in, in mm. a big part of my work. And so I am an external person that comes into a position of trust. And so quite often there are, there are things that I am able to say or, or which maybe people within the system uh, would, would feel uncomfortable doing. So that, mm-hmm. that felt interesting to me. Uh, And I also really liked when you talked about the human systems that we work in. Um, And I think that that, that's what really drew me to this conversation is the fact that it seems like you are doing some really interesting work within organizations. And I'd love to kind of pick apart some of the nitty gritty of that in terms of the things that you see. Um, I have a pin in a, a, men, a mental uh, cork board with psychological safety pinned up on it as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I suppose I, I'm really interested to know across all of these interesting companies that you've been working with, what are some of the the key themes that you see across them in terms of things that they really like help with? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I guess to jump back a a step to that point that you made about being able to be the outside perspective with a bit of extra trust, it is an interesting kind of phenomenon that happens because I often hear from clients, uh, I've been saying this for years and like no one will listen. (laughs) I've been trying to get this thing to happen for years. And I think what happens is once you're inside the system, you sort of just become part of the furniture, unfortunately. And the people around you or the blockers that you see, it's really easy to rationalize why we wouldn't listen to that that voice, right? And instead, when you're bringing in Nobel, the one benefit that we do have, we, of course, face resistance, like up, down and across all the work that we do. And I think we're all experts in change, but like even more than that, we're experts in resistance to change and how to navigate it. But um, With all that said, at the end of the day, you are paying someone to come in and give you a contradictory opinion, right? You're asking us to help change things. And so we're going to say some things that you might not expect. And just that allows us to already make some progress and amplify some voices um, about the things that they've already been trying. We're never coming in to try to be experts about like what you should do differently. It's more how do you go about doing things differently? So often when we help a company... Um, I wouldn't ever go into an, a marketing agency and say, you should be doing this, this, and this. I think it's instead helping amp- amplify the the conversations that are already happening and help figure out why haven't you tried this, this, and this, these things that you've been talking about for years, why haven't you tried them? Or when you did try them, why did it only last a week? Um, so it's really about that. Uh, but yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. You're probably feeling all the same feelings that we do is being able to be that outside perspective that that can amplify that that question a little bit more um in terms of a a website that really seemed to connect with what you were talking about I think it was from one of your clients and it said something like we've been talking about this for years and Nobel were able to Nobel were able to achieve this in a week and you know you get the sense there might be this groundswell ready for change but actually without that external catalyst it might not emerge or it might take much longer yeah, and sort of like the permission to take a risk. In a lot of the organizations we work in, they've been the same practices maybe have been around for 20 years, right? Like when you look at a Calvin Klein or Warner Brothers, that company has been around for a long time. And so it's possible 
a process has been along around for 30 years too. And it's hard to change something so concrete. Um, but I think we give a little bit of permission to just like try something new. It can be scrappy. Actually, it can be awful. That's kind of the point as we're trying to take a risk. Um, and if some of these don't fail, then we probably weren't risky enough. Uh, so I think it's a bit of that permission too in the coverage of like, oh, so it's actually okay that I pose a risky idea or that I, I try this like half-baked project. I mean, we never go in and do anything uh, you know, off the bat that might hurt the company. It's always safe to try and safe to fail. Um, but I think it, it, that's what a lot of people are looking for. If you're finding that innovation is, is really stilted at your organization, it's not because people don't have ideas. It's because they don't have the voice and venue to share those ideas, or they feel like when they share them, they're going to get their hand slapped when the thing you know, falls apart. Um, and so there's, there has to be a little bit of balance of like listening to people and also knowing that some of the things that you listen to might be total failures and that's okay. Yeah. I feel like we're brushing up against psychological safety now. Yeah. Uh, you talked about kind of, yeah, the, the safety to, to talk about things. And I suppose I'm, I'm really interested in in the concept of psychological safety, I think that it it's a really lovely uh, and elegant way to describe what I think is a really pervasive problem in a lot of organizations. And yeah. um, I suppose I'm interested to know how you came across it and then how and how it features in your work. Yeah, yeah, it's I yeah, we really did immediately kind of go there. It's because it it kind of has a thread in almost everything we do. It's one of the first things we talk about with teams that we work with or with organizations that we work with um, because uh, it's sort of the basis of high-performing teams and high-performing environments. Um, and for those that aren't familiar, so there was a study, I think it was in the 90s that first originally discovered psychological safety. The concept, yeah, the concept itself is that... Um, a room or space feels safe for interpersonal risk-taking. And you can do that without feeling like you're going to get your hand slapped, like I mentioned earlier. Sometimes the way that we describe it on teams is that no one person's ego is so big that it makes someone else feel small. Um, the interesting wrinkle about it, my favorite part of it, is that it's a, a shared belief. So it's not, I have psychological safety. I can say whatever I want because I'm, you know, the CMO and I can walk into any room and say whatever I want. Um, and it's not like you feel it. It's that we have a shared belief that this group feels psychological safety. Um, and that's, that wrinkle is what also makes it hard to immediately create, right? It's a muscle that you have to build together as a team. And as soon as you add new members or kind of like shuffle up that team, it might wobble a little bit and you might have to reset it. Um, the way that we came across it is Amy Edmondson started to popularize it, uh, especially in its use in workplaces. And then Google did a study called Google Aristotle, where they were trying to figure out what makes high performing teams. Um, you know, Google has the money to kind of figure out what's the recipe that we can just kind of keep replicating to make our lives easier. Um, and that's sort of what they were trying to do. And they found five characteristics. So it's not just psychological safety. But psychological safety was number one on that list. The others are things like belonging and impact, role clarity, right? So like I'm sure many people listening to this have felt the feeling of being on a team and not knowing where does my work end and yours begins and constantly like stumbling across one another's lines, um, which can feel really awful. Uh, dependability. So like I can assign something to you, Joe, and I know that it'll come back on time or done well or, you know, based on our shared agreement, it's going to come back in the right way. So those characteristics are what we gravitate towards a lot when we're trying to help teams work better together and really pinpointing what is it that's stopping you. It's so often that psychological safety is one of the things. Um, when I start to explain the concept to people, they immediately are like, oh, yes, I've been on a team that's had this before. Or, oh, no, I, I've definitely been on a team that hasn't had this before. It's a really clear like feeling once you know what it is. Um, and the key is, as a leader, knowing how to build it and how to know when it's at risk or being threatened so that you can kind of reset back to, to trying to continue to build it together. So I, I looked at the 
papers that Edmondson wrote about this kind of as as mm. as her thinking was developing and it it seemed that there was a, a questionnaire a, a measure a measure that could be given to teams that would explore kind of different aspects of how they how they worked and learned and there were some questions around psychological safety and it made me immediately think of wow I wonder what kind of activities I could do with groups to help mm-hmm. them explore these concepts and I suppose yeah. I wondered whether you you know whether you just talk about it openly or whether you take teams for a process when you're when you're helping them to think about that that particular aspect of their work yeah everything that we do we try to take from I like I think of it as like a bit of a continuum like there's like an awareness anytime you're learning anything there's like an awareness mode and then there's like a like you've absorbed it you understand it you know how to regurgitate it back and say it to someone else and so we try to always go past the awareness mode like beyond just knowing the definition how would you know when it's when it's present how would you know when it's at risk uh, what can we try to start building it right now? So almost everything we do involves a bit of learning, of course, like like I just did, sharing the definition and then also just practicing it actively. Um, and it just depends on what layer of the organization we're talking to. So if we're talking to a team, an actual unit, we'll help them with testing out some new practices that literally build psychological safety as you go. There's nothing really that like, there's no silver bullet for it. It takes a lot of careful practice. It's similar to, um, I think of it as really similar to diversity and inclusion, right? There's no switch you can flip for someone to feel included. It just doesn't work. You can set up as many programs as you want and, you know, have beautiful posters and sayings and frameworks for how you hire people and how you promote people. But it'll take a lot of time and a lot of hard work to keep navigating that back to the, the, the road that helps you bring in that diversity and inclusion. Also, because the concept of inclusion means that you're bringing in new perspectives constantly. So you're just always adapting. And that's not too dissimilar from psychological safety too, right? Because I talked about earlier, when a team changes or a new member is brought in, you're just constantly adapting. It's, that's what it's about. And so it's helping a team understand that, one, that's something that we'll have to do. It's something you always continue working at. And then how? Um, one of our favorite tools is something really simple called a check-in that requires zero psychological safety to try and starts to build psychological safety as you go, just because it's so simplistic. Um, and really all it is, I, I know a lot of teams do variations of this, um, but we uh, will bring it into companies where they're not trying anything like this. So it's just starting a meeting with one sentence on what you're bringing with you that might be distracting you from that meeting. It can be personal, like my kid was up all night last night and I didn't get any sleep. And it can be professional, like I'm on my 10th Zoom meeting today. And I'm just like wiped. I think a lot of that, us are feeling that right now with uh, everything happening with COVID and how we've, you know, transitioned our work to the to Zoom. Um, so it's just a check-in, something quick that lets people understand where you're coming from. Um, and it has a lot of benefits. One of them is psychological safety. Another one is that there's a study that shows that if you speak up in the first five minutes of the meeting, you're more likely to speak up again. So it just kind of starts to create that... Uh, setting of equal voices right from the start. Um, It also helps you navigate assumptions a little bit, right? So like if I had feedback for you today, Joe, I would know uh, after your check-in, like, oh, Joe's a little tired. Maybe today's not the day for me to give him that feedback. Or, oh, Joe seems like like he he just said he had two cups of coffee. He's really energized. Maybe it's a perfect day for us to do that brainstorm together. Um, And so that's one of the practices that we'll try. Super easy. Like literally, if you're listening to this, just try it with your team, help explain why you're doing it. And then say, we're going to spend five minutes. Everyone's going to give me one sentence of a check-in and then we'll move on after that onto our actual meeting. Um, And the teams that we do it with that have never done it before feel such a difference and just like, wow, this room feels warmer. (laughs) I feel like I feel more comfortable bringing up an idea. Um, It just starts to bond teams together in a really quick way. That's like an easy version. And then as we go, we get a little bit more uh, advanced, I would say. We do things like team retrospectives, where which helps people reflect on the characteristics of a team and what they're doing well and what they're not doing so well at and help kind of talk out that some of the elephants in the room that have been bringing tes- tensions to teams. And we work a lot with leaders on helping them think about how are they building in psychological safety. So one of the studies, you maybe saw this in Amy Edmondson's work, but one of the studies around psychological safety um, 
is actually a study of nurses. Um, and what it showed was the nurses that are more honest about the risks, or sorry, the failures that they had throughout the day are the ones that are higher performing. Which all that says is that they're not worse nurses. They're better at talking about what the mistakes are so that those mistakes don't become costly, expensive, scary mistakes that you know threaten people's lives. They start small, they're shared early, they can be fixed early. Um, so that's just applying that same process to work. How, as a leader, are you helping people raise their red flag when they feel it versus saying, oh, people are going to hate me if I say that this project's not on course. I'm just going to like keep my mouth shut. And then three months down the road, we notice, uh-oh, something major is falling apart. Um, so th- that's a lot of what we practice too, is at the end of the day, as a team member, you can um, really embrace psychological safety. But if you're a leader, isn't, it's very hard for you to bring it into a team without that leadership uh, support. Yeah, that's a really good point. I really like the way you frame it in terms of the amount of psychological safety something might take to try versus Mm -hmm. what it might give. And that's a really lovely um, framework for that. I was looking through the Nobel website and I saw, um, I mean, I'm really interested in the concept of resilience for for lots of different reasons, but I saw you had a resilience retrospective. And so it was interesting to hear Mm. you talk about retrospectives as a thing. And I can totally see how you need quite a lot of trust to be able to openly dissect something that had happened and talk about, you know, levels of commitment and emotional energy yeah. and, and all of these kind of things. Yeah. And, and we're all different, right? So some people might get really excited about the prospect of like unpacking all of these tensions and talking them out and want all of that to happen in the very first retro that you do in a team. I've had that. I've had leaders say that to me, like, Oh, I'm disappointed. We didn't talk about that. Like really gnarly bit. The thing is it takes, it takes doing it shitty a couple of times. Like you're just going to have to do the team retro and not be that good at it and talk about the lightweight things. And then as you get more comfortable, I promise you, if you keep building that muscle and keep doing it, it will get there. Um, If you feel like it's not getting there after like your third team retro, then maybe that's a thing to talk about. Hey team, I've noticed we kind of keep this really surface level. Why is that happening? And just open up the conversation there, but I wouldn't push it too early. Uh, Otherwise, some of your, like some of the people who are not ready for those conversations are going to hate those meetings like absolutely hate them with a fiery passion. I've been, we've joined uh, organizations to help make change and had retros be this like trigger word for people because they were called into a room and called out versus brought into a room to figure out what went wrong and how might we fix it next time, right? So it's making sure that like, make the space healthy first, then try to dig into the hard stuff. Yeah, retrospective shouldn't be a synonym for performance management. Exactly, yeah, right. Public shaming, basically. (laughs) which we've definitely seen, sadly, at some organizations. Yeah, I, I could totally understand how that would happen. I'm really interested in how you explore the concept of power, because I suppose you, you, you alluded to this when you were talking earlier about the fact that people might feel safer than other people. So psychological mm. safety has to be a, a, a group state. So if I am the CMO you mentioned earlier, you know, I can totally imagine feeling a lot safer than someone else who's just joined the team. So how do you help people unpick that? Because I feel like it could be an ongoing process. Totally. Yeah. I think you start by modeling some fallibility first, right? So not only modeling fallibility, but also let's say, right, we've just joined a new team. We're trying to set up some psychological safety as our, our first meeting with some new members. And I'm the leader. I would start first. I would share my thoughts first. I would talk about what I feel like is a healthy version of this meeting versus unhealthy or healthy versions of teaming versus unhealthy. Um, I would also talk about like, not in that meeting necessarily, but in general as a leader, sharing that like failure is okay. Risk taking is okay. Raising the red flag is exactly what I want you to do. It's kind of setting all of that venue for, um, the moments when you want people to speak up so that they have a good sense of what, what you expect from them. It takes a lot of effort on the leader's part to start that first. Um, and then just modeling some fallibility. Like I said, saying, oh, 
you know, I thought this was this, but actually we're learning now that it was this and modeling that so that others can do the same thing, that, that, that it's okay to share when you, when you made a mistake or when you didn't know something. I'm wondering if we could take a brief uh, travel back in time to something that yeah. I mentioned earlier around the, the kind of themes that you see across organizations, mm. because I love the way that you talked about your desire to see different flavors of, of human system, but I suppose you're also in quite a privileged position because you can see uh, commonalities a- across them. Mm, yeah. It's such a good question. I, I feel like I get this question a lot. Um, and I get this question a lot from outside perspectives, like what common areas are you seeing? And then often when I start a project with a client, the framing from them is like, we're different from other companies. We're different because of this. So it's kind of interesting when you're inside of it, I think it feels very individual and it's like your own. And when you're outside of it, you can start to see the patterns. Um, In terms of what we see, a lot of silos around, like I think a lot of companies just haven't cracked cross-functional work. How do we actually bring people together and teams together to get something done in a way that doesn't feel uh, stilted, like I'm throwing something over the fence to you and now you're taking it, but you don't have all the context. Um, and then you throw it over the fence to the next team. Um, and the challenge is most of our work in most organizations is cross-functional in nature, right? So, uh, if the marketing team wants to roll out a new campaign, that's the marketing team. It's also the tech team helping them figure out like, where's the platform? Do we need a new website? And it's probably a whole lot of other people too, like maybe sales, maybe product design. But when we, at the beginning of a year or whenever we do our finance planning, most companies are planning department by department versus like project by project. And so then your budgets are already set up to be siloed and everything else kind of starts to flow from there too. So that's one one challenge I feel like we see absolutely everywhere. It's just this struggle to figure out how do we work cross-functionally a little bit better um, in a way where the us versus them isn't marketing versus sales. It's us, this company versus them, the industry, them, our competitor, et cetera, right? And helping kind of reshape that that framing a little bit. Um, That's one. The other one is like the really uh, low-hanging, not low-hanging fruit one, but the one that I think everyone brings up in the first meeting with us is meetings. Just the time that we spend together live isn't working. We it's it's not productive. It has too many people. We don't know how to make decisions. We walk out of a room and we forget what we talked about. Um, so that live co-working piece is the part that people are struggling with too. Cause that's a lot of the time that's how you get your work done, right? It's in a meeting or how you should be able to get your work done versus on your own at a desk. I think that just encourages those silos I was talking about earlier. Um, those are probably the two. The third is that management training is still new in a lot of organizations. A lot of leaders uh, don't really get training. You often look around at the examples around you and kind of decide your style based on what you see working or not working in the environment around you. Um, And then the management training that does exist is more like time cards, sexual harassment, you know, your like basic training around that. Kind of just like the basics of what's hourly versus salary and like you know, all of the, the really, really basic layer of management training versus how do I motivate people? What do I do when my team has a roadblock? How do I encourage risk-taking? Kind of all of the more um, behavioral pieces of, of leading a team and what that looks like. How do I lead people through change and uncertainty? Right now in COVID, I, I know a few companies that are doing programs around how to lead through uncertainty, but there are a lot of leaders out there right now that don't have a good example around what should I be doing? An example or even just like a peer group too. Like who who can I tap for all the questions that I have right now? So those are probably the three that come top of mind. Yeah, I I suppose COVID is a really powerful lens to view things through because it brought such extreme uncertainty and pressure. And and I think mm-hmm. that, you know, that that can bring out uh a faster thinking mind and uh clouds of emotional baggage um, and so yeah I, I, I can kind of I'm just you made me think of families so 
I don't know if you're familiar with psychodynamic theory. Hmm. I don't know. Okay. Or refresh my memory. So psychodynamic theory is a is a branch of psychology and it's really focused on unconscious processes, power dynamics, and mm. the core principle really is that the relationships that you are familiar with, that you're used to, define what you want from relationships. Mm. And mm-hmm. it it kind of way back in the 1900s branched from people like uh, you know Freud and Winnicott, Bion. So it had that traditionally quite armchair one-on-one nature mm-hmm. but you also see so in England the the kind of main hub of psychodynamic thinking also has another branch which is all about organizations mm-hmm. and their, their approach on that is that organizations are very much a place where you have unconscious processes power dynamics and they use the analogy of a family quite a lot and I suppose I, I wondered how that sat with you, um, thinking about organizations like families. I feel conflicted about it. I think that um, I think that it reminds me of organizations that are highly purpose driven, right? Like if you think about nonprofits or companies that are people are really attracted to because the purpose is so strong. Often, what happens is like those are the places with the most toxic culture because it starts to create a little bit of leeway. People will put up with a lot in order to be able to drive towards that purpose. And I think that the family metaphor starts to create kind of a similar mentality, right? You'll put up with a lot from your family. If you feel like they have your back and this is truly family, you'll put up with a whole lot. And there is a lot that you won't discuss. There's also this feeling that as soon as something more business-minded happens in a family, you feel whiplash and you don't really understand um, how could you call us a family and now suddenly lay off half of the staff. I thought we were a family. Um, I think it just creates some kind of unhealthy connections around what, what separates work and family in reality at the end of the day. Um, the leaders of an organization, while they may care about their people, there are others in their lives that are like number one for them. Um, and, and that's the case for most people, right? Like the people at your organization, you care about your teammates. I still, my number one, still my husband, my dog, this house, making sure that we have safety and security. And so my decisions are going to be based on that and prioritize off of that. And I think that the family metaphor can start to create some unhealthy blurring of what is the reality there. Um, and people get away with worse things. So. Yeah. Is so, what do you think? It's so interesting where you took that because I totally understand how you went to organization leaders saying, we are like a family, we should be like a family. Yeah. And the, the reason I'm smiling is because I had approached from a totally other point of view, really trying to highlight the fact that in the same way that families have these kind of really complex relationship structures Mm. and sometimes some unhealthy habits and you know sometimes uh can be quite blind to the things that so organizations Uh, yeah i i I agree i don't think i'm comfortable with the idea that people should treat their organization like their family yeah you broke up just a little bit, but hopefully you can still hear me. Um, that's interesting. I think I just, I, I'm so used to hearing leaders say that or use a version of that metaphor that I already like, it reminds me of that topic. So maybe that's why I went there. But I think that's true. Like in terms of dynamics, absolutely. I think we often talk about how the biggest example of an organization as a family is um, when you start, when you're a startup, right? Like very early into your years and maybe there are five of you and you don't need that many rules and norms because you can kind of figure out how to work together with five people. You know where to house all your work, you know where you communicate, and all of that is a little bit implicit. And then as you bring in more people, maybe you grow to 50, 200, 2000, the 
amount of relationships isn't the same as the amount of people, right? It's much, much more. It grows exponentially. And it's similar to when you have a family. Maybe you have your first child and you've kind of figured out the schedule and then you have your second and everyone is on different sleeping schedules and soccer schedules and dinner and whatever else. And it just adds all this complexity. I think in that way, absolutely. I totally understand the the family metaphor and like the number of relationships that happen inside an organization and the way that they can be functional or dysfunctional. Uh, I think it's a good starting point for thinking about why why is this so hard? It's because of humans, right? Like it's just because we're all humans and we have to figure out how to relate together in order to make it easier. Yeah, totally. So I do some work with organizations, helping them to apply psychology in their work. And, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes that's about planning or thinking about problems. Sometimes it's about helping them to deal with the difficulties that come with their job, you know, it, it, almost like a, a supervisory role, not mm-hmm. uh, as management, more kind of dealing with emo- emotions and understanding yeah. behaviors. And uh, I suppose I'm interested because you have such a, a different perspective to me and also so much knowledge about organizations. Um, what kind of movements do you see happening to try and help people experience more moments of well-being kind of Mm. versus, uh, you know, sometimes uh, what can happen in terms of burnout. I saw on your website as well, you have a lovely stat about the change that has been kind of uh, supported in terms of work-life balance. So I suppose it might time that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunately, I think it's taking quite a ding right now um, with everyone going remote and kind of trying to recreate their offices via Zoom. Um, what I'm hearing from a lot of clients um, is that everyone is just feeling like Zoom burnout, Zoomitis, I hear a lot. Um, So in terms of the movements that I've seen, I have seen a lot more um, thoughtfulness around the right boundaries. There's There's a practice from Pepsi, PepsiCo, I believe, called leaving loudly. And it's just the concept that if you're a leader in an organization and you are leaving early 3 p.m. to go to a doctor's appointment um, or to take your kid to recital or what have you, you should walk around the office and like tell people like, hey, I'm leaving to go do this thing so that it creates, you're modeling that behavior and making it okay to leave loudly. Um, So that's like that, when I think about that, boundaries. That's one of the practices that I start to see is just being more conscious about how do we set better boundaries and be more honest about those boundaries. And I think we're seeing now more than ever that like being a parent is a full-time job. People are seeing on Zoom that kids are bursting into the room and that there's a lot to manage and maintain. And it's kind of been hidden prior to this because the worlds haven't collided as much as they have now. Um, But even if you're not a parent, you're still at home and you might have to wash down all of your groceries. And that takes a couple hours. Like we're all kind of, all of our home life is showing that there needs to be greater balance between the two because it's really hard to ignore right now. I don't know if that's actually happening. I feel like I hear from a lot of people that they're being required to be on Zoom from like 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day, basically. Like every meeting is a Zoom meeting. Everyone's required, whether it's a happy hour or actual work. Um, And so what I would like to see more of is some two things. I think I I just did a hackathon with a group of HR people. um, And the hackathon was all based on how does HR respond to COVID? And our team in particular was... Uh, focused on anxiety at work. Like how do we manage how people are now having anxiety at work because of all of this? And um, I think at the end of the day, as a leader or as a team member up here, your job is not to manage someone else's anxiety. Um, It's to maybe take away the things that you might be contributing to their anxiety, right? So one of those things might be expecting them to be on Zoom all day. Another of those things might be not talking about the financial health of an organization when you see everyone else around you has layoffs and furloughs. Um, people are If you haven't talked about it, people at your organization, I promise you are wondering if layoffs are coming. And so the, the team that I mentored, they ended up coming up with a concept that was just called tap in, tap out. So The idea is as a leader, when you need people during this time, especially during a time of uncertainty, 
tap them in. So rather than assuming that everyone is going to join for X, actually literally tap people in and say, I need this person, this person, this person. And don't do the thing that we often do, which is like, oh, but just in case I'll invite, you know, these other 10 people. Um, And then the second part of that is setting up a system where you can tap out. I think it's clear from our, the state of things currently that people are going to have days where they, you know, it's a Thursday, but they need it to be Friday, right? So setting up some sort of system where you can say, I'm, I need to take a half day, like mental health day, or you call it whatever you want. You can just set up a, a color-based system in Slack that says like, mark yourself as red or as yellow when you're not feeling as great. And we'll know this is not the day for, for this type of thing. It's kind of like what I talked about with check-ins earlier on this call. It's just creating some more context and awareness about where everyone is coming from and saying the thing out loud. I just shared this quote um, from Mr. Rogers on Twitter and LinkedIn the other day, and it was talking about how if you can name something and you can talk about it, it becomes understandable and you can process it better, right? So just say it out loud rather than having it be this unsaid worry that people have. Mm, I hear that. You know, I, with my own team, have had moments when we've been on zoom thankfully not the whole day you know just just a, a short short very productive yeah. meeting um and you know i've had team members at home with a five-year-old just on their knee mm-hmm. and they're still participating in the meeting and mm-hmm. you know it just made me think firstly it was lovely because it, it's such a human moment in in what yeah. is a professional space but also it just made me think how strange is this? Because if that five-year-old was on a, a knee in a physical meeting, I'd yeah. be like, oh, that's quite different from usual. <laughs> but they were able to contribute. The child was really happy. It just, it just, it mm. gave a little kind of uh, peek behind the curtain of what might be possible in a, a few years when, when cultures have changed. Um, and, and I suppose I got quite excited about that because... You you talked about you you described it really nicely when you said these two worlds haven't collided yet, and I feel mm. like they have been smashed together, and I and I wonder yeah. what uh, what will come out of that collision. Oh, me too, and I really hope I am with you in hoping that it creates more understanding around the balance that everyone is. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking about parents a lot, but everyone is doing it right now. There's there's a lot of different versions of caregiving. There are a lot of like it could be balancing you and um, your workout every day. That's fair too, right? You're allowed to have a life and have that be something that you can hold fast and strong on. So um, yeah, I feel that way too. I really hope that it's something we take back. I worry that it'll kind of snap back like a rubber band if we're not really conscious of it um, and don't you know try to take those small take steps to actually bring it back with us after this. Um, also just because, you know, we're seeing that a lot of the furloughs and layoffs are affecting people of color and women in particular. Um, the folks who are still in jobs that are active and on the front lines are often underpaid. You know, if you're not a, a doctor, the, a lot of the others like grocery stores and delivery and are often underpaid and also managed by people of color and women. And the caregiving also, not just because of societal norms, but because women are often the member of the the family that's paid the least and maybe has a more flexible role. Caregiving will often fall on them too. And I worry that we'll see a drop in just women in leadership and people of color in leadership as a result of all of this. My hope is that we all actively um, are conscious of that and take steps to make sure that that doesn't happen. But it's one concern on my, my the most pessimistic version of me, of course, is thinking that. I hear that, yeah. I think, I mean, yeah, and um, in terms of the phases, we're we're certainly in a maybe the less kind of emergency reactive response first phase. I yeah. feel like I'm personally in quite a thoughtful, I wonder what's going to happen next phase. So yes, yeah. I, I hope we can, uh, I hope we can use some of the reduction in anxiety that we're experiencing now to do some planning. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So in solution-focused brief therapy, there's 
Now, solution-focused brief therapy is actually a response to psychodynamic approaches that I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. And it's all about like, we don't need to delve into your childhood. We can just know how you'd like the world to be. Mm-hmm. And if I know that, then we, we, can, we can talk about something therapeutic. Yeah. And we have a question called the miracle question. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of like, if you could click your fingers and change one thing, like what would it be? And so I suppose I wonder with your your experience of organizations, if you could click your fingers and change one thing across all organizations, mm. what would that be? Such power. Yeah, yeah, you've got that power. Um, <laughs> love it. This is a question that we often ask our clients too, um, which I'm sure we we pulled from this <laughs> research, but we often ask the magic wand question, like what's the one thing you would change if you had your magic wand out? Um, I'm stalling. I'm trying to think of my answer. <laughs> thinking is fun. Uh, yeah, I'm just thinking because I feel like I there are a lot of things. I'm just thinking about what I would prioritize. Hmm. It's hard, isn't it? It's like when someone says, oh, what's your favorite song? And you're like, well, I have yeah. to do one? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know what I think I would, I think that, while a lot of our work at Nobel is meant to be across a company, we never just work at the leadership layer because we don't want to just start with, you know, top-down mandates um, around culture. Same time, it's really, really hard to make a healthy culture when the leadership is not self-aware, self-managing, and trying to make change themselves um, and comfortable with changing. The fact that, you know, wanting things to change around you means that you probably have to change a bit yourself too. So, I think if I had my magic wand, I would kind of like up everyone's skills around self-awareness and self-management and the tools that kind of sit with that. To your point about the the retrospective, the leadership retrospective that we shared the other day, um, that is one of those those skills. Like I wish everyone was practicing that a little bit more so that we could all be more self-aware in how we come off as leaders when we're coming off like a leader that we wouldn't want to be right? When you notice yourself being someone, you're like, oh, actually, that's not the, that's not how I want to be remembered. And then, yeah, thinking about who do I want to be on the other side of this? This is a moment, to your point, we're kind of past the initial panic swirl of just how do we work online and how do we adapt to this? And now it's not really a moment for decision-making quite yet because we don't know what the decisions are, but it's a moment for sense-making and kind of planning and thinking about maybe just even just writing down a list. Here are the ways that I want to be remembered as a leader through COVID. Here's how I hope my team talks about how I led them through this. Here's who I want to be on the other side of this. Um, those are all the kind of behaviors that I would start to instill. Yeah, I really like that. You made me think of a resource that I've been kind of tinkering with for teams and it's about reflecting on relationships. And it, it, sounds, mm. it sounds similar to what you're describing there in terms of, thinking about the important relationships in your life and how they made you feel and what they did to to make you feel like that. And then Mm -hmm. thinking, okay, so of those, you know, what would I like more of in my team and how, how could I do that? And what could other people do to, to help kind of facilitate that as well? And I suppose it gets interesting when you start to compare across people's wants and needs, right? Because you might see, oh, actually, we've got a cluster of, of these kind of things. And those things seem to be a bit uh, counter to each other. I, what, can we, what can we do about that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. Well, I'll send it to you and you can, you can have a, a, a dissect. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's sometimes a coaching question that I go to, too. If you're a leader and you feel stuck right now, how would someone that you admire approach the situation? What would, like... Michelle Obama, what would she, what would she say about this? What advice would she give you? Um, but, you know, pick your own, pick your own you, person. Uh, an approach called oh, I lost you. Oh, I can hear you. Okay. You're a little broken up, but I can hear you. So the last um, episode that I released from this podcast was with Cassie Robinson, and we talk all about narratives and the way that they can be used to help uh, on an individual level, on a societal level. And uh, I really love the question you just posed there in terms of, you know, okay, if you're finding it a bit tricky to answer that question, you know, what might your 
your mom or what might Michelle say in, in this situation help you think about some preferred stories that you might you might struggle to access otherwise. That's really cool. So I feel like we're coming to the end of our time together, Jane. So I'm interested to know if you've got any final thoughts or if you'd like to mm. say where people can find you to find out a bit more about Nobel. Yeah, this is such a delight, Joe. You asked such good questions and such thoughtful conversation. It was a total delight. Um, and now I'm excited to go back and listen to that narrative episode because I feel like that, I feel really strongly about that being a skill that leaders should have as well. And that helps us all just like align on what the story is a little bit better um, in teams when we're trying to you know, move towards a certain mission. In terms of any final thoughts, no, I think we like covered all of the things that I love talking about around this subject. If you want to find me in other places, I am Jane Garza on LinkedIn and hi Jane Garza on Twitter. And you can find Nobel at nobel.io. Um, and we're named after Alfred Nobel, by the way. <laughs> so uh, if that helps with the pronunciation, but either one is good, honestly, because we're happy to do noble work too if we can. So either one works. Noble is nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really last point dot io I feel like that just became a thing when did that become a thing I don't know someone asked me one time if it was because of industrial organizational psychology and I was like I don't think so I think bud just uh chose a different ending to the to the um link and yeah it was just randomly one that he chose it's so interesting for good reason (laughs) like in this it must have been 20 13 I was um on an accelerator with a startup and all of the other startups were choosing .io because it, it kind of looked cool but yeah uh-huh. where did it come from I, I wonder it might belong to a country or something like that I have no idea yeah I think it came about when when domains started to change and you could do like .cheese .shoe and .io happened to be one of the popular ones at least we're not Nobel.cheese you know yeah yeah that it doesn't have the same ring no yes it was really lovely to talk to jane and cover all the topics that we did let us know what you thought by tweeting us or sending me an email uh really is great to hear all your views and and allow that to trickle into future episodes the best way of supporting the podcast is to sign up to my mailing list which is linked in the episode description and sharing it with your your people you know if you think that somebody you know would be interested or appreciate the sizzle send them the link if you've got ideas of who you'd like to be on future episodes of the sizzle you can get in touch with me and we can think about how to make that happen all right see you next time Sizzle.